So tonight's talk is called Lessons for the Religious but Not Spiritual, uh, the perplexing and tragic story of King Saul. So this talk is for the one who feels that they go to church, they go through the motions each week, but are unmoved in their hearts. Uh, is for the one who has served in some ministry or in some mission, but now feels burned out by it. This is for the one who keeps acquiring more and more knowledge about God, but doesn't feel that they're further forward in knowing God personally. Uh, this is for the one who goes from spiritual practice to spiritual practice, tradition to tradition, uh, Bible translation to Bible translation, and feels that they're no longer forward. And this is for the person who feels like they've done all the right things for God, but feels stuck in their life with God. And there's many more. But I feel that all those, this is for all those who have been or who have found themselves falling into this pattern of religious, but not spiritual. So let me define religious, but not spiritual. <clears throat> so you may know the common phrase spiritual, but not religious. Uh, that's, it's a bit older. It's not a phrase that people use as much anymore. People use, speak of religious nuns or none of the above, but it was very popular for a long time to describe yourself as spiritual, but not religious which means that you had a lot of skepticism toward organized religion, toward a more individualistic expression of spirituality or connectedness. Now, religious but not spiritual is not its opposite. To be religious but not spiritual does not mean that you favor organized religion as opposed to any individualistic expression of spirituality or connectedness. In fact, I'm going to argue a bit later that they're basically two branches from the same trunk. Um, religious but not spiritual is ultimately, this is the definition, is ultimately a desire to see an internal change through external or religious forms. It's looking to external forms to make a internal change. So if I keep singing or find the right music, Christian music, my heart will feel the love and gratitude that I should feel. So if I pray long enough or find the right techniques, um, then I will hear God. God will become more personal. Um, I could give, I could continue to give examples, um, but there's too num numerous to relay, and they can be expressed in a myriad of ways. Uh, we may live a long while within a religious but spiritual posture, or we may fall into it from time to time. I think we all do. So it's not just the bad person or, or something like that. It's just, we can fall into it. Now, I'm not gonna argue that religious forms are bad. Um, rather, I'm wanting to examine our relationship to these forms with God. Um, but I'm going to approach this topic a bit differently than I usually do with most topics. Typically, I would do it more of a survey, some systematic approach. Um, explain the different ways that we can be religious but not spiritual, and then explain how we can avoid being that way or, or way forward. Um, instead, tonight I want to go deeply into one person's story um, to see how they were religious but not spiritual, and then derive lessons from that story, and then conclude and come to a conversation. So the reason I want to do this is because we can gather different insight when looking into one's personal story rather than just a survey. It gets more general. 
But I also want to do this because more importantly, the scriptures want us to do this. It wants us to understand this story in this way. And the person I want to talk about is Saul. So that's not Saul of Tarsus, who is better known as the Apostle Paul, who wrote several letters in the New Testament. Um, but rather, <clears throat> this is about Saul, the son of Kish. And his story is recounted in the Hebrew portion of our scriptures um, in the first book of Samuel. Uh, his story is intentionally told to us to know what it means to be religious, but not spiritual. So I'm going to paraphrase his story, highlight some salient points, and then derive lessons from his story for us, the religious but not spiritual, and then conclude on what God is calling us to instead. So it's a real simple layout, and it's a simple and boring PowerPoint. <clears throat> Sometimes I like 50 slides with lots of pictures. No, there's like six, and it's just script, okay? Um, so that's where we're going. Uh, the case study of King Saul. Uh, and so we're going to look at the case study of King Saul, lessons for the religious but not spiritual, and then concluding reflection. <clears throat> okay. So the best way for you to know the story of Saul is for me to read his story to you. The problem is, is that his story lasts for 24 chapters of the Bible. <laughs> Uh, which seems inordinately long for any story. It's amazing how much ink is spilled on Saul. And it's a long, complicated story. Uh, while it's better to read his story, uh, we can be thankful that the narrator has laid out his story in a simple way. Uh, Saul's story is in told of three other figures. These other figures are foils to Saul. Um, a foil in literature is um, characters that are a contrast to the protagonist, to the main character, to reveal something about the main character. So Saul has three foils, the prophet Samuel, the prophet of God, Samuel, Saul's John um, son, Jonathan, and then the succeeding king, David. Uh, so during Saul's story, these characters are almost always mentioned in relation to Saul. Even when David and Jonathan are um, close to one another, it's in reference as opposed to Saul. Um, so Samuel, Jonathan, and David all represent people who understand God, who listen and heed the voice of God. Um, in contrast, Samuel does not. I mean, Saul does not. So before I get into his story more directly, <clears throat> I need to give you some of the backstory. The book of Samuel begins at the very end of the days of the judges, um, and those are the leaders that Israel had before they had kings. So Israel wasn't a typical nation. It didn't have kings. It had judges, so they were the leaders. However, in a book called Judges, you realize that these people are often immoral and inconsistent with the ways of God, um, <clears throat> and it gets worse and worse and worse. <clears throat> now, the book of Samuel opens on the edges of that story. And it opens with a barren woman who opens her heart to God and cries out to him that she would receive a child. And God does. He remembers Hannah, and in so doing, he remembers Israel. Um, he remembers his love and salvation for Israel. So um, Hannah, the mother, names her son Samuel because God hears. 
This becomes the important theme throughout the rest of the story. In fact, a little side note is when it says that uh, I will name him Samuel because God saw me. It was the name Saul is actually God hears. So it's this interesting contrast from the very beginning of the narrative that Samuel and Saul are in contrast. So it becomes an important theme and you hear a lot about the voice of God and the voice of the people. But this is a special moment in the story because even the priests and the prophets were not hearing from God. Yet Samuel, even as a little boy, hears God. And so Samuel rises to the top and becomes the final judge of Israel. However, even though God has proven faithful to Israel, protecting them from their enemies, Israel rejects God as their leader, because they want a king like the other nations. So God answers their prayer and gives them what they ask for, even though it's not a good, it's not a good thing for them. So sometimes God can answer prayers that are not good for us. So he's going to give them a king just like the other nations. So he chooses exactly the kind of person they want. They get a tall, handsome man from a wealthy family with pedigree. Saul, son of Kish. However, when we first see Saul, he's chasing donkeys along the foothills. And he can't figure out where the donkeys are. So you can find the first thing that you learn about Saul, he's a bad shepherd. Okay. So on his way, the servant tells him that there's a man of God named Samuel nearby and that they could pay him some money. And perhaps this servant of God can tell them where the donkeys are. So, um, so Saul approaches the city where Samuel is supposedly, and as soon as Saul finds Samuel, Saul, um, Samuel invites him to a meal. And Saul is surprised that when he comes to this banquet of over 30 people that have been prepared for days, that the meal is in his honor. Saul is the honored guest. Samuel already knew that Saul was coming and that the donkeys were lost, but now found. But Samuel also tells Saul privately that God is anointing him as Israel's king. To confirm that God, in fact, desired this, Saul would see three things come to pass on his way home. He would be met by his father's servant to say the donkeys had been found. Uh, He would see a traveling group of uh, people with food and give him two loaves of bread. And then he would fall into this group of prophets and prophesy. All three things happen. When Saul's uncle asked Saul where he had been, Saul said that he had been looking for the donkeys and he met Samuel. His uncle said, what did Samuel say to you, this man of God? And Saul said, he told us that the donkeys had been found. But Saul said nothing about him becoming king. So you have to ask, is he like Mary, the mother of Jesus? who held these things to himself because they were too wondrous for him? Well, we find out that this is probably not so, because the next event is a public event that Samuel attends um, before all of Israel. And that's where he casts lots to see who God's anointed king would be. The lots first fall to the tribe of Benjamin. Then it falls to the tribe of the family of Kish. And then it falls on Saul. Saul was not only given a private confirmation of God's leading, but now a public confirmation 
But when Saul's name is called, he couldn't be found. He wasn't found until God said that Saul was hiding behind the baggage. It's really easy to hide in our baggage. (laughs) But when the people saw how tall and handsome he was, they're very glad with God's choice. That's exactly the type of king they want. Soon after, Saul is inspired to lead Israel to battle against some enemies attacking them, and he's successful. Saul recognizes that the Lord has given them victory. It's a good beginning, sort of. So Samuel then gives a speech transitioning from his political leadership to Saul's leadership. He tells them that if they obey the voice of God, their king and their nation would thrive. But if they did not, then it would be cursed. Then the story of Saul's leadership begins. But it starts very badly. So Saul's son, Jonathan, attacks a group of Philistines who are continually, uh, which is a tribe or a nation that's continually fighting Israel. However, when the Philistines counterattack, the Israelites realize that the Philistines are far more organized and far more technologically advanced than them. They're just farmers with spears. So they do naturally scatter. They scatter behind rocks, in caves. They even try to hide in cisterns. I guess that's a good hiding spot. So Saul was supposed to wait for Samuel, uh, who would make a sacrifice before the battle began. But that morning, after seven days, when Saul did not see Samuel, Saul decided that he would lose the people if he did not make the sacrifice himself. He gets through the first half of the sacrifice, but then Samuel arrives, just like he said he would, just a little later than Saul wanted. So Samuel asks, what are you doing? Saul tells him that the people were scattering. The Philistines were gathering and you weren't even here yet. I had to do so. I had to force myself to do this. But Samuel condemns this action and says that because Saul did not obey God's commands, his kingdom would be taken from him. Yet the battles against the Philistines uh, continued. <clears throat> I think this is yeah. It's going to be this. This is going to be the <laughs> the the slide. Okay. Okay. Um, so Philistines separate into three different ways, and they surround Israel. And in spite of their technological advancements, their trained troops, Jonathan decides to go out on his own to fight the Philistines. Um, Saul, meanwhile likes to sit under a pomegranate and surround himself with the priestly entourage. Um, But if you know the story, these priests were a part of the problem. They were the priests that did not hear from God. They had all the vestments, but they did not have the power of God with them. They just knew how to do the sacrifices. But Jonathan goes out and in spite of the odds, looks to God to deliver um, him and Israel over the Philistines. Um, And wonderfully, God gives him a sign. And so Jonathan attacks in the most impossible uh, scenario, and he has victory, and the Philistines are terrified. So Saul sees a wonderful opportunity to attack. But before he does, he wants the priest to bring the ark of God and to make a sacrifice. He's not going to do it this time. He's going to ask the priest to do it. Okay. But it's getting too intense. The battle's starting. He's like, oh, forget it. Okay. You're halfway done, but forget it. Um, And so, but they have victory anyway, and soon they make another attack, but this time Saul demands that they fast from food until they have victory over the Philistines. 
If anyone disobeys this oath, they would be cursed and killed. Well, Jonathan didn't know anything about this oath, um, this religious oath that Saul makes. And so as Jonathan's going through the forest, wanting to look for Philistines to fight, he finds some honey on the ground and eats it. His friend says that's forbidden. Um, and Jonathan is irate at his father for being so foolish. Why are you making the soldiers so hungry? We would have defeated the, um, had greater victory over the Philistines. But because of what my dad's done, we're not having a good victory at all. So uh, by the time the troops do defeat the Philistines, what they do is they end up killing animals and start eating their flesh and blood. They're starving. Well, the priests find out about it and tell Saul, hey, the people are going crazy. This is sinful. So Saul decides to make an altar for God. And this is one of many altars he makes to God, interestingly enough. And so he says, we're going to make sacrifices. We're going to cook the meat so you can eat the meat cooked, not living blood, which is against God's command. Um, but then after they eat, they decide to go back to the battle, but they're looking for God's witness to go to call them but god doesn't speak so saul's like someone sinned someone sinned and i need to find out who sinned he finds out jonathan did not fulfill his father's oath and so he goes okay you're gonna die okay <laughs> i'm gonna kill my son and the people are like are you nuts he's the one listening to god and having victory why would you kill him and he's like okay okay well uh, will preserve him. And so Israel saved Jonathan. Then in the most telling part of the story, God, through Samuel, commands Saul to exterminate the Amalekites. They had fought against Israel as they were leaving Egypt uh, when Israel was most uh, vulnerable. And so God says he's going to curse them. And so this is now the time that he wants to fulfill that curse. And he's asking Saul, okay, now go out and exterminate everybody. Exterminate the Amalekites. I want you to kill all the men, all the women, all the children, and all the animals. That's a hard command coming from God. Saul has a problem with this. But he doesn't have the problem we might have. He doesn't have a problem killing the women and the children. His problem is that he doesn't want to get rid of the best stuff. And he keeps King Agag alive. Um, <clears throat> so... Uh, he keeps them alive, and then God reveals to Samuel what Saul had done. And so now I'm going to read the only section of this story so that you can hear Saul and Samuel for yourself. So this is 1 Samuel chapter 15, starting at verse 12. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. Gilgal is the place where you make sacrifice to God. So he makes a monument for himself, and then he wants to make a sacrifice to God. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Ah, blessed be you to the Lord. I performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and lowing of oxen that I hear? And Saul said, oh, They brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we've devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And so Saul said to him, speak. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission 
and said, go and devote the destruction of sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what is evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I've obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I've devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, sheep and ox, and the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen to them than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being that king or being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe. And it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret for he's not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, Samuel, Saul said, I've sinned, but please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul. And Saul bowed before the Lord. It's a very interesting interplay between, and you get to hear Saul's character, setting up monuments for himself, making rationalizations, confessing, but still wanting to be honored before the people. So as a result, God sends Samuel to appoint a king that would be better, that would be after God's own heart. He chooses the unlikely, unlikely figure of David. And David, unlike Saul, is found to be shepherding successfully. And later we find that David is a good shepherd who protects his father's sheep. But it's at this time that David and Saul is overtaken by a tormenting spirit sent by God. The only reprieve he could find is worship music by a skilled musician who turns out to be David, shepherd and musician. Saul is comforted by this worship music. But overtaken by dark fits of rage, he wants to kill David. He wants to kill the one person that comforts him. Then begins the story of David, but the story's main focus remains Saul. David kills the giant Philistine Goliath. He attempts to wear Saul's armor, but is too heavy for him. It does not allow him the freedom of movement to go where God wants him. So instead, David kills Goliath through his skill as a shepherd and kills him by slinging a stone at Goliath's head. So Saul now has David join the army. So Saul's not only a shepherd. I mean, David's not only a shepherd. He's also a musician in Saul's temple, but now he's also a warrior in Saul's army. But David is so successful that the women start singing songs about how great David is. Well, this does not make Saul happy. He's bitter and envious. 
And from this moment on, for several chapters, which I won't recount, Saul is seeking to kill David. At two key moments that David, through, (laughs) through skill, decides that he's going to prove his loyalty to God's anointed. He decides not to kill him in the cave. He decides not to kill him in his tent. And at both moments, David shows him his garment and then shows him his spear. And Saul, his despair leaves and he realizes, David, my son, he comes out of this gloom. But those moments are fleeting. And so he continues to pursue David and to pursue um, holding on to his kingship. Saul's leadership comes to a bitter end. Now, near the end of his reign, he becomes desperate to hear from God um, because God is no longer speaking to him and Samuel is dead. So what does he do? He looks for a witch that he exiled from Israel, and he wants the witch of Endor to conjure up Samuel from the grave so that he might find out what God wants of him. So he's seeking out a witch to know what God wants for him. Of course, Samuel, once he's raised, (laughs) condemns Saul for doing such a thing and then foretells that uh, he and his sons are going to die in a battle soon. His sons are killed. And at the very last moment, when the Philistines surround Saul, Saul decides to fall on his own sword. Um, He'd rather die than die of shame. The end. So that's the rise and fall of King Saul. And many, many books have been written about it. Um, Now, I needed to go through that story to kind of get to the lessons. Because I'm going to refer to these stories quite a bit. So there's four lessons for the religious but not spiritual. The first, uh, the four are distrust of God's leading, sacrifices over obedience, fear of people over the fear of God, and conflict in a divided heart. Okay, so the first is distrust of God's leading. That's the first characteristic of the religious but not spiritual. We become religious but not spiritual when we distrust God's leading. So despite clear signs given to him by God through Samuel, Saul is hesitant, reticent, and unwilling to follow God, where God leads. Samuel had a banquet in his honor before he even knew Samuel. Samuel then foretold Saul about three events that would occur, and they did. And yet he tells nothing to his uncle about what God had called him to be. Samuel cast lots before everyone, and that's a further confirmation not only private, but public, but Saul hides behind the baggage. Nevertheless, Saul, even though he distrusts God, he builds altars for the Lord and makes sacrifices regularly to God. Saul wants God's blessings. I want you to hear this. Saul wants God's blessings, but he does not want to follow where God leads him. Why? Perhaps it's out of anxiety or fear. Saul seems he wants to maintain control over his relationship with God and over where God might lead him. This is the beginning of being religious but not spiritual, is wanting to maintain control on what God is doing, where God is leading. That's how it started for Saul, and that's how it starts for us. When we distrust God, we are not moved by him. Instead, if we remain within God's people, we end up going through the motions but without any movement. 
Our religious life is like the motion of a hamster wheel going around and around, but not going forward. This is because religious activity is comforting. The ancient words, the beauty of ancient cathedrals, the order and beauty of religious life, but never do we wanna be called out of our element. Um, Annie Dillard had this great saying about um, church. Uh, Annie Dillard is a, a Christian writer. And she said, on the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea of what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It's madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense, or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. Now, this can go too far. <clears throat> Some people will read into every sign as the leading of God. One woman came uh, to Labrie because her pastor and another friend told her that she should marry someone. She was not sure about it. She didn't feel sure, but the pastor and this friend told her to, that God was leading her to. So she did. And as soon as she got married, she knew it was a disaster. It was a problem. I knew a man who left his family because God had led him to go be a missionary. Found out a year later, he had remarried with new children. Sometimes people will look to three green lights. And if these are answered, then God must be answering that desired leading. But remember that God can answer prayers. He answered Israel's prayer, even though it wasn't something they should have had. So God can answer a prayer that you shouldn't have. There's one thing to be given the desires of our hearts. There's another thing to be given over to the desires of our heart. And God is said to do both. So let me give a brief word about signs. Signs don't change the heart. Saul received clear signs, and we are told that they were signs from God in his special case, but Saul's heart was not moved toward God. It simply, um, it simply accepted that this was what would be. Saul just said, okay, that's just what's going to happen. Remember that Jesus gave signs to announce who he was and what he was doing, but the people wanted signs, but not the signified. When the people followed Jesus after he fed 5,000, Jesus said to them that they followed him not because of what the signs pointed to, but because their stomachs were filled with food. They wanted the blessings, but they did not want the cost of following him. So Jesus soon stopped giving signs, and the only sign that he would give in the end is that he would be crucified and raised on the third day from the grave. So what we learn from the gospel accounts and from the rest of the Bible is that people want signs, but not what is signified. People who are continually looking for signs or green lights are simply expressing a different form of religiosity. What we discover is that whether we are in the pews with old, boring creeds and ancient hymns, or we're looking for every sign with great worship music, we are being religious, but not spiritual. 
the ritualistic or the hyper-charismatic find themselves in the same place. They're looking to the religious form, not to God, necessarily. Now, Judaism, and especially Christianity, are unique in saying that God is transcendent and holy, but also personal. The problem for Saul is, was his inability to see the second aspect. God is personal, and that he could personally lead him. He didn't know God's voice because he didn't trust or understand his leading. He was precisely like the king of the other nations. He was just like the king of the other nations. So how do we come to know and trust God's voice, to know his leading? To trust God's leading doesn't necessarily mean that one has to like it. It would be convenient to be called only into those things that we want. Consider that the disciples had to learn what it meant to follow Jesus. When Jesus asked the disciples if they would leave like the others, when his teaching got hard, Peter said, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter knew God's voice and therefore his leading. Jesus said to the disciples that they would be friends, those in intimate connection to God, if they did what God commands. It is the same with Saul. When Saul does not do what God commands in regard uh, to the Amalekites, God says to Samuel, Saul did not obey my voice. We begin to know God's voice when we look to his commands, when we look to his word. Then this is deepened as we spend time in prayer with God, especially when we do less talking and more listening in prayer. This is how we come to know his voice and his leading. Uh, this was wonderfully portrayed uh, at a children's time at a church on Bowen Island. And the, the teacher took a child and said, okay, turn around, close your eyes. And they were going to have four men say the child's name. And the child had to identify their father. It was the second person that spoke. That's my dad. They knew immediately. They didn't need to have the third and fourth person. Um, we come to know God's voice, his voice, whether this is shown through wonderful signs or no signs at all. So this is a step away from religious, but not spiritual. Okay, so the second is the principle of sacrifice over obedience. Does anyone have questions? Okay. So Samuel makes this well-known pronouncement against Saul. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? So Saul made this pronouncement in light of Saul not following through God's command to eliminate the Amaleks to fulfill God's curse on them. Um, as I said, you would have thought that he would have had a problem with killing the women and children. No, he had problems with getting the best stuff. Um, he didn't want to get rid of what he felt was valuable. You can imagine, hey, we keep King Agag. I mean, don't you know how useful he could be? And giving them the best stuff, this would encourage them to fight for God all the more, you know. So he wants to fulfill God's commands, but only insofar as he finds that it is valuable. When Samuel confronts Saul, Saul continues to argue that he did fulfill God's commands. I, he did, I did what he asked me to do. Saul rationalizes and rationalizes. And then Saul makes, Samuel makes this pronouncement. Has God, does God care about your sacrifices? Doesn't he care more about your obedience? 
Um, and this is finally when Saul is rejected as king uh, and Saul falls down. But this pronouncement, does God desire sacrifice over obedience, um, is not precise because there's no mention of sacrifice in that story. Um, what he failed to do, what Saul failed to do, is what God commanded him to do in regard to the Amaleks or Amalekites. And so what Samuel's doing, he's taking this principle and applying it to this situation and to Saul. And so I want us to understand what does it mean? It's better to um, obey, obey than have sacrifices. Yeah. Didn't he, didn't he save the animals so they could be sacrificed though? That's true. He did. He did. Um, did uh, Liz asked, is that, um, didn't he preserve the best animals to sacrifice? That's true. Good point. Corrected. I stand corrected. <clears throat> but I still have a lot to say. <laughs> you haven't derailed me. <laughs> I have been derailed before. Um, Saul follows God's commands, but only insofar as Saul wants. He is willing to go through all the motions. He builds several altars. He makes sacrifices. He likes worship music. 106.5. He hangs out with the priests and calls on them from time to time. He even went out to battle when God called him to. It seems as we read his story that he acts as if he loves going through the religious motions. And that if he does this, then God will be pleased with him. If Saul does his part, God should do his part. Bless him. It's really a form of prosperity gospel. And it's something that we can easily sleep, slip into in our minds. Here Saul did what God wanted him to do. All Saul did was just make some tweaks to what God was calling him to do. He rationalized to himself that God was okay with this. I mean, basically, I fulfill God's command. So what's the big deal about some special event uh, with the best animals? Won't it be encouraging? Won't people love you all the more? Now, for Saul, this isn't just one instance. This principle is really applicable to his whole life before God. Consider how he made a rash oath that all the soldiers fast until they defeat the Philistines. But did God require Saul to do this? So why do it? It seems that Saul is showing religious zeal in order to bring blessing and victory. See how hard I work for you, God? See how I beat myself and discipline myself for you, God? Or consider the times when Saul grew anxious and he set to make a sacrifice when Samuel didn't show up quickly enough. Or Saul called the priest to bring the ark of God to the battlefront to make required sacrifices. Interestingly, in both cases, these sacrifices remained incomplete. In the first instance, Samuel told him that he had disobeyed and the sacrifice was left half done. In the second instance, Saul grows too anxious and calls the priest to stop what they're doing. It's half done. I think Saul shows a half-hearted posture toward God. Saul is willing to go through the motions, but he's not willing to do what God asks or commands. As a result, Saul is continually out of step with God's leading. He's behind God's leading when he's called forward to become king. He's ahead of God's leading when he makes hasty oaths or sacrifices. What we see is that he trusts in the form 
but not in God's voice. He looks to sacrifice over obedience. And how much easier it is to make sacrifices, that means to go through the religious motions, than to obey God's commands. How easy it is for us to rationalize how God should bless us with all that we've done for him. How much easier it is to live only in God's assurances without ever changing our behavior. Um, one student came here uh, and she had a severe drinking problem. At night when she was taken over at home, when she was home, at night when she was taken over by a tormenting spirit, most likely caused by chronically excessive drinking, she would put on worship music because she knew demons didn't like praise songs. Uh, it was this that calmed her and enabled her to sleep. And after she left, she wrote me and said uh, that she had returned to vodka, a better friend than God. Okay. She desired comfort from praise music, but she didn't, but she struggled with obedience to God for a variety of reasons. Now we might be judgmental of such a person, but how easily we too can fall into similar patterns. We may turn to worship music, sentimental, sentimental Christian sayings, icons, or even theological truths to reassure us without putting our hands to the plow to obey. It's not that these things are wrong in and of themselves, that Saul sought sacrifices, fasting, or priests were not wrong. It was the posture that he had toward them. When we do this, we look for assurance, not from God, but from those things we associate with God. We are functioning as religious, but not spiritual. Consider how e easy it is for us to rationalize that God should bless us for all that we've done. I'm chilled by the testimonies of the women um, the late Ravi Zacharias exploited. They said he remained kind and interested in their lives, yet he would ask them for sexual favors. How can an internationally known Christian apologist do this or justify it? The women said that Ravi said that he had so much stress from ministry and that he needed affection and release. He rationalized that God permitted this behavior because of all that he had done. While it's right to condemn these actions, it shows us how easy it is for us or even Christian leaders to rationalize how God should bless us by what we've done. What Ravi did was become religious, but not spiritual at that moment. He continued to speak and evangelize across the world, yet he did not seek obedience to God's voice. You hear of pastors who help themselves to church funds, who use their position of power over women, or who continue to preach the gospel and serve communion when their hearts are far from God, even for years. Now, God has saved sinners. He uses sinners for the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and our leaders will fail us even in small ways. Our leaders and pastors may go through dry, difficult seasons. This does not make them liars, hypocrites, or religious, but not spiritual. It's when a person begins to justify themselves by their position or by their ministry, or when they rationalize how God should bless them for their efforts, that they become religious, but not spiritual. <clears throat> so they're doing the work for God, but no longer the work of God. What is true for Christian leaders is also true for every Christian. We become religious but not spiritual when we trust more in the religious form than in obedience to God. 
Perhaps we justify ourselves by how much theological or biblical knowledge we have, how much we tithe to churches and to charities, by which tradition we are of a part, by all the causes for justice we pursue, by all the people we've helped, um, or by how strictly and severely we treat our bodies for God. Look what I've done. You can at least do this, God, for me. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to, than, and to listen than the fat of rams. Okay, this turns to the third, the fear of people over the fear of God. <clears throat> when Samuel made this pronouncement against Saul, Saul finally says what we knew all along. So far, we have seen Saul as a person who distrusts God's leading, but willing to go through the motions. But now we find what truly motivates Saul in the first place, the fear of people, what they think, what they say, what they want. He goes through the religious motions, but we discover it's not for God's approval, but for people's approval. Perhaps it's rooted in the fact that he was born tall, handsome, and wealthy. Uh, it's funny how people with these inherited gifts can be ensnared by them. Saul, just like the rest of Israel, and too often like us, is worried about appearances. And isn't this what the people wanted? They wanted a king like the other nations. The only time people are mentioned as tall in the Bible are always foreign leaders except Saul. Studies have shown that more attractive people are more likely to be believed and voted for, despite the content of their policies. So this worry about appearances becomes the motivation behind all the forms of Saul's leadership. The Israelites begin to scatter when they see the amassing Philistine forces. So Saul makes a hasty, unauthorized sacrifice to keep the people together. And so Saul admitted that he feared the people um, and that why he let them keep the spoils from the battle, because he was worried about what they thought and wanted. Perhaps Saul keeps the priests continually around him to keep up his own appearances, to give him the appearance of righteousness. When one is religious but not spiritual, he or she looks to how they appear externally rather than focus on who they are internally. It may be the person whose house is full of religious objects like icons or ceramic crosses. It may be the person on Zoom who makes sure that they show that they have an extensive library of theological works. <laughs> it may be the person who can quote the Bible, chapter and verse, or the person who knows the right answer to any theological question. It may be the person dressed in fineries in church. These things are not wrong in and of themselves, but it is, again, often looking to these things to justify ourselves by them. But this leads us to the question, from whom are we seeking justification? It easily slips into seeking approval from people. So when I was younger, I used to think that if everyone respected me and liked me, I somehow stood justified in my own existence before God. It's an easy trap. One can begin to perform morally or religiously to have good standing. And then we extend that good standing we have with people to God. Interestingly, throughout the narrative of Saul, those who go out on their own or stand against the maddening crowd are those who are following God's leading. It's the outliers. Jesus himself is said not to have trusted the people's love for him because he knew what was in their hearts. He knew that when it got tough, 
when he'd be moving toward the cross that they would abandon him. Jesus spoke also of the Pharisees who wore fine clothes, made good speeches, made loud, long prayers, and yet they did not recognize God or his word when he came near. When Samuel was sent by God to anoint a king after God's own heart, he chose someone that even Samuel found surprising. When Samuel first began to look at the sons of Jesse on those who he was to anoint, he found the eldest son, Eliab, very impressive. Samuel thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on his height or his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So when we pray, when we tithe, when we do a good work, to whom are we really looking for approval? Do you wish that you could look better, sound better when praying, perhaps not admitting to having real struggles? Who do you truly look to? This leads to the fourth and final um, uh, lesson on the religious but not spiritual. And that is conflict in a divided heart. <clears throat> Saul's not a simple figure. He's a complex and perplexing figure. And it's easy to feel for him as you read his story. You feel that he gets the short end of the stick. He didn't want to be king in the first place. However, you find that the complexity of his character is rooted in his internal conflict. As G.K. Chesterton put it, he has one foot in the church and the other in its shadow. He has one foot in and one foot out. When one looks to the approval of people, you can quickly be divided within yourself and you can become easily compromised. This is true whether one is inside or outside the church. But for the one who wants the approval of both people and God, one will find themselves divided at the most existential level. Consider how we see this with Saul um, in 1 Samuel 15, where he's rationalizing. Saul is at pains to make it all right. You remember when, uh, when Saul, Samuel's coming and he has, he has an agenda that God told him, Saul disobeyed, I'm taking the kingdom away from him. Samuel prayed all night and he's marching. Saul sees him coming. What does Saul do? Hey, hey, buddy, blessed is the Lord. We've done the commands. You know, he wants to put the best foot forward. He wants to get ahead of the conversation. He rationalizes and makes excuses, perhaps even excuses that he himself believes. Self-deceit is strong. What is most telling is when he finally is exposed and rejected by God through Samuel. Saul still wants Samuel to honor him before the people by allowing him to bow before the Lord. Saul continues the religious form in order not to lose face in front of the people. This internal conflict only intensifies throughout Saul's life. After this moment, Saul is afflicted by the tormenting spirit I spoke about. His only relief comes from worship music played by no other than David himself. And even so, Saul, when taken by dark fits, tries to kill David. He's trying to kill the very person who gives him comfort. He's divided. Later on, when this same David becomes a mighty warrior, Saul becomes envious of David's victories. He doesn't want women to sing songs about David, or at least not making comparisons. 
men can compare just as much as women. <laughs> Saul wants all the approval. So he wants to murder David. And when, this goes on for several chapters. But in the moments when David reveals to his, his loyalty, then those brief moments of light comes to Saul's mind and realizes David is my son. But then he's taken over by despair again. By this point, um, I said that God's no longer communicating with Saul. He even is in so much conflict that he even approaches a witch to hear from God. He's divided. He doesn't know where to turn. What began with Saul is divided loyalties, giving him conflicted ideas about who he was and what he was to do, intensified in despair, and the whole attempt, it collapsed on him in his suicide. Now, we are, I hope that none of this is not anyone's story or becomes anyone's story, but when we are religious but not spiritual, we often have one foot in the church and one foot in its shadow. The conflict within the heart is who it loves and who it serves. Does it obey the voice of God or the voice of the people? The conflict is trying to serve two masters at the same time at the deepest level. Whose approval am I really seeking? Where does my identity ultimately rest? When this is divided, we lose our understanding of who we are and who we are to be. When this is divided, um, we are tossed by every wave. And when crisis comes, we collapse. Now, many have come to Labrie as a result of these crises of identity. They come wanting to know what is genuine in their faith toward God and what is not, what is artificial. Who am I really? What really drives me? What really is my relationship to God? Perhaps life has become very difficult and they want to know how God could have let this happen to them. Doesn't he know all that I've done for him? Missionaries and pastors so often come here completely burnt out. What have I really been doing all this time? Does God even really exist? These, these crises produces grief. But the question for us is, does it produce worldly grief or godly grief? Um, as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians um, chapter 7, I think. Worldly grief produces despair and death. People give up on God because he has failed what they have expected of him. Godly grief, on the other hand, produces repentance and a renewed life toward God. People realize that they must give up their false notions and false expectations of God and come to know him as he truly is. Saul's heart was exposed to a series of crises, but they never produced in Saul godly grief. Even in his confession of sin, he still just wants to be honored in front of the people. I believe uh, it was his refusal that brought on the tormenting spirit from God. It's like conviction without yielding to God's way. In contrast, when David was exposed for his sin against Bathsheba and Uriah, he confessed and repented. While he and his family and even the nation suffered consequences of David's sin, David's heart was truly oriented toward God as a sinner. That's the key difference between Saul and David. 
So when a crisis reveals our true loyalties, it's not the end, but the beginning of an opportunity to turn back to the living God and to know him in new ways. Okay, so now I'm coming to my conclusion. So how are we to truly understand religious but not spiritual and turn toward a genuine or a true spirituality? So first, when we fall into the patterns of being religious but not spiritual, as we will, we're ultimately looking to external forms to guarantee an internal reality, a transformed internal life. We may look to religious forms or look to others to justify our existence before God. If I have done all these things on behalf of God, perhaps even a successful ministry, quote unquote, where many people have been saved and helped, I believe that I am justified before God. If many people have expressed gratitude and praise at what I've done, I feel that what I've, I've done, what has been asked of me. Or as Kanye West said, he knows that he's going to heaven because he wrote Jesus Walks, which is a great song, but it's a crazy, crazy thought. But this is only has the form of godliness while denying its power. So the response to the religious but not spiritual, though, is not to be spiritual but not religious. This attitude is to reject, in theory, religious forms for our spiritual connectedness. You remember me saying that earlier? Mm -hmm. Who needs a cathedral and an entourage of priests when I can simply walk in the forest, attuning myself to the resonance of nature? The problem is that this is not, is not religious in theory. Spiritual but not religious is only not religious in theory. In practice, such a person does not avoid religious forms. It may not be prevalent organized religious forms, but they are still forms and simply done individualistically. Perhaps meditating to the sounds of water lapping onto the shore. Perhaps touring Buddhist temples throughout Korea or touching the Wailing Wall. Perhaps it's the newest form of spiritual practices from a, found, a renewed found Christian tradition. The spiritual but not religious simply becomes the religious but not spiritual. In both, God is impersonal, and the focus is on the external form to produce an internal change. So my suggestion is that we should be religious but spiritual. The problem is not the forms. The problem is our relation to the forms. In the other two ways, the forms are looked to as having power to transform. But in true spirituality, the forms only point to a deeper reality, but cannot produce that deeper reality. For instance, Christian baptism does not wash us clean of our sins, but points us to the God who has already washed us clean through Jesus Christ. Communion does not forgive us of our sins, but points to that power in what Jesus Christ has done for us in his life, death, and resurrection. It's the same with other forms, whether that's serving the poor, showing hospitality, um, giving generously, acquiring biblical knowledge, or giving thanks before one eats. These forms are good, but they point to a prior and deeper reality, to what God has already done to us, for us, and in us by his spirit. It is the power of godliness with a transformed heart. True spirituality does not look to external forms to produce a transformed internal life. Instead, true spirituality 
is a transformed internal life that produces the form. Mm -hmm. Or as I've often taught elsewhere, good works don't accomplish grace. Grace accomplishes good works. Or to put it in a more biblical way, God transforms our hearts to produce the fruit of his spirit. We can memorize and put up on posters listing the fruit of the spirit, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, so on. But no matter how well we know them, we cannot produce these in our own power, even with our best intentions. So how does it happen? It begins simply. We raise our empty hands and trust what God has done in us and for us. We no longer call God a liar for what he has declared and done. And because of what God has accomplished through Jesus Christ on the cross and in the resurrection, as we look to God with empty hands and faith, God is faithful to transform us from the inside out. But this is just the beginning. Once God begins this work, it's not as if we're now set to pay off the debt that Christ paid for us. Instead, it's continually looking to God's voice and to God's leading that God will produce in us and through us his life out into the world. This is the essence of true spirituality. Okay, so that's the end of my talk. Um, now is a time for discussion. Uh, okay, Anina. I'm just curious to talk about the voice of God. Curious about the voice of God? Yeah, because mm -hmm. I mean, you were saying it's not just the signs and the wonders that was for the voice of God, and they used an example of the children hearing their father. Yeah. Yeah, so, so what has been your experience or someone else's experience of actually knowing the voice of God? Because I've heard it said, like, you know, it's just a feeling inside, or it's a thought that you have, or it's an audible voice, or it's reading scripture. So Anina wants to know, what is the voice of God? I talked about the children hearing the voice of their father, but what does it mean to actually hear the voice? Is it, is it just a, is it a nudging? Is it audible? Is it a sign? What is it? Um, and so Anina wants to know for me or anyone else what they might think. I'm just curious. Yeah, without it becoming a religious thing. Without it becoming a religious right. thing. Yeah, well, I mean, God is our creator. And God reveals as creator, so not just as a redeemer. So it's not, so God does reveal his word, his voice through the scriptures. That's something that Christians hold, that um, it's not just, it's not just the idea that humans have God impressions and they write what they think God wants to say, but that um, Christian tradition says, no, that this is God's inspired word, that God breathe out his word uh, through these people that we might know his voice. So in part, it does mean scripture. Um, and this is available to one who's Christian or not. They might be dull to hearing or they might hear sensitively. So you have the disciples. Jesus is speaking directly to the Pharisees, and to the disciples and to the crowds. And some hear his voice and some don't. Some see but cannot see. Some hear but cannot hear. And so uh, it's not as if God's voice is um, like Eugene Peterson says, it's told slanted. Somehow it's like a parable where, uh, or like a joke. Someone tells a joke. If you have to explain the joke, they don't quite hear it. Um, a parable is similar. Either you get it or you don't, de depending on the disposition of your heart. 
Uh, and so God's voice is spoken through scripture, whether we understand that to be his voice or not. But that's what God himself says, that this is his voice. Uh, and then also historically, Jesus is the word that God, um, the word became flesh. So we can say we look to Jesus, we see God's voice incarnated. But he also speaks as creator. So, um, uh, and I'm getting to that, that question that you have about, well, what does it mean to hear his voice? Um, but God can speak as a creator. You know, um, Muslims hear him in dreams, you know, have been encountered by God in dreams. Um, there are people who hear audible impressions from God. Uh, I think that God's voice comes in different ways, but it's seen as a consistent uh, from a consistent person. It could be nudgings, it could be signs, it could be audible, it could be from the word, but they know that this is from God. Um, uh, so I, I would say that, um, so one thing is when I look to scriptures, if I hear within my mind something that maybe is not my thought, uh, and I think, is this my thought or not, but it, it becomes a direct impression that this is from God. And, um, and it's true to his character, as I've seen in scripture. Now, some people might say that it's just auto-suggestion, right? Um, now, that is possible, but I don't think that's always necessarily the case. There was a time that I was tutoring somebody. And whenever I tutor somebody, I ask, God, please let me know where I should go with this conversation. And sometimes I pray very faithfully. Sometimes I don't pray so faithfully. But this time I prayed very faithfully because I needed to tell this person something I think is very difficult. Um, I wanted to, to confront them with something that I think that they could not admit even to themselves. And, and I thought that I needed to kind of bring this forward uh, because it kind of shaped everything that this guy did. Uh, and I think that he didn't want to say it because he was a good Christian and he shouldn't have such thoughts or something like that or actions. And so I sat down and I was wanting to go there and I heard God say, no, not yet. So I waited. And then I was like, oh, this is a good opportunity. God said, no, not yet. I was like, Ugh. and then I found another opportunity. They're really getting into it. And I'm like, and God says, no, not yet. And then it came to this point and God said, wait. And this man started speaking about, um, about something in his past that shaped him into the person that he was, something he had never told anyone before. But it's not what I thought he was going to say. It's not what I thought he needed to hear. And it was, it was something different than what I had anticipated God wanted me to say. So I came with an agenda, but God had a different agenda. So I wanted to be sensitive to where God was leading me. Um, so this proves that I am charismatic. Uh, some people think I'm not, um, but I, but I do want people to be sensitive to God's leading, but I don't know if anyone else has any opinions or anyone on zoom has any thoughts. Made me think of Sam we used to have in the fridge. Most people want to serve God, but only in an advisory capacity. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's good. That's good. Y'all could hear that. Yes, Liz. Thank you, Clark. This was a really, really helpful lecture. Um, 
and I have a lot of thoughts and comments. And I'll, try to, I'll try to write them in. <laughs> okay. This um, has lots of thoughts. <laughs> lots of thoughts. Uh, I guess like a couple, a couple of my friends are coming to mind in mm. like conversations I've recently had with people. Um, and I, I want you to, to say what you would have said to them if you were me. <laughs> 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 so one of them recently said to me, who, someone who left Christianity said, um, why does it matter? <clears throat> like, I'm still a good person who cares, takes care of people and loves people. So what does it matter where it comes from? And, um, and so like, and Alejandro and I were talking about this today, like that there's people who are like, okay, it's about like what you do. So it doesn't matter like where that comes from as long as you're loving and caring. And then mm -hmm. there's other people who are like, it's it's about what you believe as long as you believe the right things. Okay. That's the most important thing. And then what was the third thing I said? <laughs> I forgot. But like the, the uh, action, oh, experience. It's about what you experience. And if you have the experience, it doesn't matter where you come where it comes from as long as you're having the experience. Uh -huh. um, and so then, and then we were sort of like hashing it out and saying like, it was basically the point that you made about like submitting your life to God and like Jesus being, you know, the center of that. So I guess in that, in that conversation, I was like, I don't exactly know, like, I'm like, this isn't right, but like, I don't know exactly how to respond to the comment that she was making. So, yeah. Okay, good. Uh, well, I think it depends on how I'd respond to these, each person in their own situation. But as I mentioned throughout the talk, is that we can do many good things, uh, but it's looking for justification through those things rather than from God himself. And so we might justify ourselves by the experience that we had. Uh, wow, I had this tremendous God experience, and therefore um, God must, you know, he'll never abandon me and all these things, but our life is not transformed or guided toward him. And we're justifying our existence and our forgiveness and our whole identity based on that experience, no matter how dramatic or how consistent or whatever. Um, it can be true for uh, knowing and believing the right things. Uh, I believed all the right things for a long time and I didn't do any of them. <laughs> it was pretty fun, but not healthy for my soul. <laughs> and the set and the third is, yeah, I mean, I think loving people as I mean, who's going to say don't love people, but you're trying to justify yourself by the things that you've done for people. None of them are saying I need to look to God to justify my existence, to hold and justify my um, and when I mean justify my existence, uh, what I mean is uh, not that I should live. What I mean is that my identity is rooted in him and what he's leading me to do rather than rooting my identity in something I do or I've created or I have. And so I would say, um, yeah, these are wonderful gifts that God has given to you, but don't mistake the gift as the giver. Um, who's given the experience? So why not follow? Who's, you know, there was a 19 year old that was, uh, she was at English Libri. And I saw her and she was very bubbly. I'm not a bubbly person. I like to joke and stuff, 
but she was kind of like like this bouncing when she talked to me her ponytail was swinging side to side <laughs> and she's just like my family's atheist and i'm atheist and we just love each other and i don't know why we need god to do anything else mm. and so she asked me what i had to say to that and my gut re um, instinct has been my response ever since and that is well, all the more reason to give God thanks for what he's given you and your family. So you, you need to recognize the source and the goal of that gift and not just take it as your possession. Um, so I don't know whatever happened to her. She was only there for like three days. Um, we can hope. But that's what I would say. But that's really interesting because then the same conversation with that friend, she said, um that she she feels like she wants to pray mm. because she wants to thank someone for something mm. and she can't like she's like kind of about communicating with like mm. you know her inner self but she's like i don't think i can pray thanks to myself <laughs> so like i want to pray i'm going to try praying but i don't know like who i'm praying to but yeah. like she still feels that in, she's like i think it's good to thank myself if i did something but like if if i want to yeah. like thank someone for nature or something i didn't make that happen yeah so she said it's, lo it's still lonely to only have yourself and not to be able to pray to anyone else you know i think that there's for me these are the two what there's two wedges in what i consider the existentially claustrophobic mind mm. i believe those who are without god are existentially claustrophobic they cannot live within a closed system all they see around them is all that there is, is cause and effect of matter. But when you really truly believe that, not just theoretically, but existentially, you feel trapped. Wow, that's interesting. And so what happens is, but I do think that there's two things that God as a creator has created wedges into life that have opened us up to the possibility of believing in God. And I believe that wedge is suffering. There's got to be a meaning to suffering. Uh, it can't just be meaningless. You know, Alain de Baton was this uh, pop philosopher from England. He's a religious atheist, he calls himself. And he says, when you suffer, you know, yes, it, uh, you know, just what you need to do is look up, look at the stars and realize how they don't care about you. And then your problems don't seem so big. Uh, that's really cold comfort. <laughs> um, so I think that suffering is a wedge into knowing that there's got to be something more. But the other is wonder. When we see something beautiful or expansive, uh, um, something amazing, uh, glorious feats by humans or um, by like the Olympics, these kind of things, or, or beauty or swimming and seeing the bioluminescence for the first time. And you're just like, wow. And it just is cold comfort to say, well, it's just the complexity of evol um, evolutionary chance development. It's just, look how complex things have evolved into. Well, it's, it doesn't go much further than that. You still want to give thanks rather than an explanation. Um, you want not the explanation to the joke, you want to laugh. And so when we see these things, we don't want an explanation. We want to rejoice and give thanks and be in wonder. And so I think those are the two wedges that point to something more than a closed system. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that woman is 
pushing up against that. Okay, Thomas, go ahead. Uh, what you said was better than what I was going to say, but um, I remember reading long ago uh, um, Bondage of the Will by Martin Luther and his, his uh, discourse with Erasmus. And he said that, it, it stuck with me, that people who um, do good deeds but aren't doing them because they're led by Christ or motivated to walk this way, walk in Christ, they're just doing a good deed, are doing it for their own self-interest. Mm. Right. That's all I got. <laughs> yeah, I do think that it's often from self-interest. Um, I agree. Or at least an orientation to the self. But, you know, I find I have seen people who believe they don't believe in God. They don't believe in anything. Uh, they cannot attest to anything or say that they worship anything, which I don't think is ultimately possible, but they say that. And yet I see them do remarkable things, loving, dying people, uh, working with the homeless, um, pouring their lives out for others. And so am I to say that it's merely self-interest? No, actually, I would say, no, I think, I think that there's something in deeper than their DNA is that they're made in the image of God, that they're longing to do what God has called them to do, but they don't know why. And so they don't know why, but they're compelled to love others. And so I don't think in that sense. And so I don't want to be so cynical to say it's just self-interest. Oh yeah. Yeah. They're helping poor people, but just because they're trying to like make themselves feel better. No, no. I think some people will do things that are contrary to what they believe. And so I think it's quite a feat that these people will do make great sacrifices for others at their own expense for no other reason than they just feel that they should. Uh, and so I find that remarkable and something that should be praised, even though they don't know why they do them. Don't you think they'll be blessed by God? And do I think they'll be blessed by God? I think that those things do find blessing. It doesn't mean salvation. So I don't know exactly what that means. I think there's a sense of feeling right. And yeah. Feeling good. Like God. You know, Ellis Potter, he was a Buddhist monk for 20 years and became a Christian through Labrie. He was, um, and he's a very comical fellow, but he, in Switzerland, he says that his neighbors, the way he sees the parents treat their children he always smiles and said, God, um, God uh, loves the way you parent your children. And they're atheists. Um, but they find, they find some joy with that praise. Um, and so I think that God does delight in the actions even. Like Cornelius was a God-fearer. He wasn't quite sure who this God was, but he did great things. Um, so we don't want to disparage great acts that people do. Didn't, didn't his, um, wasn't it like a fragrance going up to God? That it was a fragrance going up to God. Yeah, his acts. Yeah. Yeah, his serving the poor was a fragrance to God. Yeah, so I think that God delights in anything that he's created to be good and to work according to. So like when, I think that when an atheist makes beautiful music, I don't think God disparages the beauty of the music. He, he, he loves the good music. Um, but, but, only if it were solely for him and for the blessing of others, you know? Um, but yeah, I think that great, 
great things can be done by those who don't know God. They just don't know why. They don't know the source or the goal of those things. I think the Holy Spirit speaks to everyone. It's not an exclusive thing just to Christians. I mean, that if you like the whole, that still small voice of God, yeah. you know, it's just kind of a secular expression, but, you know, that speaks to everyone. Everybody. Yeah, I do believe that the Holy Spirit speaks to everyone, but in different ways. And so the Holy the Spirit brooded over the waters of creation. So the spirit and, uh, you know, the psalmist would say, when you take, when you, when your spirit departs, creation withers, don't take your spirit away from us. Um, well, I think we can hear so, it a little different when you do know the source. Right. I so we, right. By all, all love, you know, comes from God. Right. And so you may not know that this is the person who speaks, mm-hmm. but the spirit at creation <clears throat> declares you know that it is good and you know what we recognize the goodness of things or and you know there's some people you know they hear they hear you know intimations of goodness and kind of god but then they become a christian and they're like now i know the source of that voice Mm -hmm. it's not just intimations that they hear in the darkness but now they have light and they can see well that's the one thing we have as christians that we, we we really have the opportunity to understand where that the, the origin of that of that's of right that, that sense of love that's you know for that's given to everyone. Yeah, I do believe. Yeah, yeah, that's right. The Christian understands the source. So, Eli, did you want to say something? You know, I I have a uh, kind of an example and then a question for you if we've got the time. Okay. Can you hear me? Yeah, I. I'm thinking back a few years ago, mm-hmm. and a friend of mine who was a manager for a financial agency here um, was introduced to a franchising opportunity by a friend of his in Montreal, flew out there, became convinced that that was the thing to do, quit his job, surrendered his RSPs. It's just the way everything came together. You know, he attended, uh, you know, a local church here, a charismatic church. And uh, he uh, came to the conclusion that this is of God, the way it's all come together and went forward. Wanted some money from me, but he wanted too much, so I didn't give him any. And so, so what happened is that he went bankrupt and uh, he uh, moved to Vancouver, had lost contact with them and uh, you know, pretty much lost all of his investments, mm. mortgaged his house and all of that. So clearly this does not sound like it was of God. So right. the other thing that I want to mention is that uh, I went through the uh, through the uh, what is it the Alpha program at uh, Glad Tidings I don't know 15 years ago. Okay. And uh, it, you know we had some interesting sessions and uh, one of the fellows who was uh, kind of assisting with the program and doing other stuff including ESL teaching, um, you know, really felt uh, unable and. Uh, unequal to the task that they had given him. And he was kind of expressing that at the private meeting afterwards that they always had. There was a lady sitting beside me who uh, was pretty spiritual and I watched her fidgeting in her chair as he went on. And finally she couldn't stand it anymore. And she said, now you stop this. I don't like saying this, but uh, I feel that I have to say this to you. You want to say the spirit is leading me to it, so be it. And she said, you're on the wrong track. God wants you to do this. Uh, 
he's going to give you the support that you need. Don't worry about not having the facilities to do it. He's mm. going to make sure that you can. Mm. And as it turned out, uh, some 15 years later, he went through a lot of ESL, uh, continued with assisting with the Alpha program. It was clearly the right decision, the right decision for him to do that. So one of them was strictly a material thing. It's easy to say that, uh, I don't know what easy, but it seems to me that it just didn't seem right to me. And the other one at Glad Tidings and the Alpha program from the way that it all unfolded, it seemed clear to me that this lady had a gift and that she expressed it and kind of expressed uh, the will of God to this individual that seemed to need it. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so that's the example, but I have a question for you. So when you heard mm -hmm. God telling you not to answer him and not to say anything, what was that? Did you hear something? Did you get a feeling? What was it? hate to put you in the spot like that, but uh, I have the opportunity, so I'm going to. No, that's great. Uh, you know, first, with all those examples, yeah, I mean, we have all these examples, and I've had many people comment, you know, said, you know, God told me this or that, and, um, and you want to discern if God, in fact, has said those things. And sometimes people say, God has told me this, and, I, and sometimes I think, no, he couldn't have. But there's times when I say, I don't know. And we'll pray about it. And I say, well, I have no clear indication it is from God or it's not. Um, it's from God or not. And so uh, there are times when people will be given leadings. And, uh, and sometimes, and you hope that these people are not led into things that they shouldn't have done. Or that they refuse to move when they should, should move. Uh, so it's not as if I'm saying, you know, if you read your Bible, you pray, and you really look to God's spirit, you're always going to know exactly where he's leading. you. I don't think that's always true. I think that, I think what is needed is a community of people to discern. But it doesn't mean that truth or even God's, God's leading cannot come from outside the church. Sometimes that can be a prophetic word against what the church is doing and that the church needs to repent or needs to change uh, because uh, I can't remember. It says that uh, you do not even what, Oh yeah. Paul in his letter to the Corinthians saying you do what not even the pagans would do. And so the pagans had this criticism against the church and Paul would say, that's right. You know, and that is a godly voice, even though they don't know God. I think there's times when people can be uh, can give people leading that are from outside. I mean, you see prophets like Balaam um, and and other prophets who speak and you see lots of false prophets within the church. They're very religious. They're in leadership and they're false prophets. Uh, that's that's one of the contentions that the New Testament church had. The early church had is trying to say, OK, who are the true prophets? Who are the true apostles and who are not? Who are the false teachers? And so they had to discern the voice of God in teaching, especially as they were developing theology, and then also just in the things that we're set to do. Um, and so there's not an easy suggestion. But when I listened to this man, I mean, uh, I think that I would have done damage had I said something. But perhaps you could have imagined that maybe no, it would have hurt his feelings, it would have hurt him, but we would have survived it. And maybe I would have come to the, to the truth in some, in that way. 
But the voice that I heard, I would say it's, it's not different than the voice of thought, but it has a person to it. It's, uh, you know, sometimes you can hear the voice of your parents saying you should be ashamed or you should be proud or something like that. Uh, you hear the voice of your friends. Sometimes if we watch enough TV, we can even, you know, uh, get stupid songs in our heads or, um, or those kind of things that can have impressions on our minds. I think our minds are quite porous. I don't see and interpret our brains as merely mechanical reactions and that we just regurgitate. And so uh, Charles Taylor talks about the porous self as opposed to the modern buffered self. The buffer self is the one that doesn't allow anything. Uh, uh, the, the modern mindset is that we're, we're only just like a computer that just creates algorithms. Uh, and, and that's how we think and hear. But the pre-modern person would say, no, there's demon possession. And there's also the possession of God's spirit. And that we are, we are pliable to forces outside of our own mind. We're not just four walls around our skull but that we are in a world that has an unseen reality that moves through us. And so when, when I say it's like a thought, it doesn't mean that it is my thought. It's not just auto-suggestion. So I believe that God can speak to us. Um, and I believe that when I heard that thought, I knew it was not for me because I was having a conversation with that thought, That's with that person. But it's not just an impression. It was distinct. It was distinct. No, not yet. It wasn't just, I felt a little uncomfortable. It was a distinct no. Like my thought said no, but it wasn't my thought. It was because the you, thought given to me. Because you were thinking yes. Because I was thinking yes. Yeah. But there mm -hmm. was this other thought said, no, you don't. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, so you may say that. I mean, when I, I mean, I'm often uh, you know, thinking and yeah, I, I can hear my own thoughts, but this, and you could almost say that there's an audible <laughs> audibleness to it because, you know, people can, you know, sometimes they say the, the voices in my head are too loud. What does that mean when you can't hear them? Uh, a, a scientist can't detect them. Uh, so I do think that there is, there is an auditory effect of God's voice within our minds. Um, and it may come through the voice of someone's mouth and lips uh, and tongue and teeth, like from someone else, God's spirit can speak through someone else. And sometimes, uh, you know, one time I was talking to this woman, she was, uh, uh, and I was talking to her and I mean, I was just laying down gems <laughs> I was just giving her theological, biblical truths. And wow, I was amazing. I was on fire. And then um, the next day, the, the woman came to me and said, I just really want to thank you for what you said to me yesterday. And I thought, yeah, of course you would. <laughs> um, this was early on. This was early on. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, what did I say that you really liked? Because I like fishing for compliments. <laughs> And I have my little saying, when you fish for compliments, you find the riverbed dry. But, and that's what happened. 
And she said, I really appreciated that you said this and this. And I know for a fact, I didn't say those things. <laughs> and those were, and so first I was humbled and angry, but then I realized the spirit worked through me nevertheless. <laughs> so sometimes God can speak through us, even without our awareness. Um, but we should always be careful. And I, and I give people great caution. I, and I don't like to say it, and I rarely have done it, to say, I think that God wants you to know this, or God says this. Mm -hmm. Because not too many people are recorded in history as saying, thus saith the Lord. Mm -hmm. So, so those, that's my two cents. What do you think? Hey, thank you for it. Oh, okay. Well, thank you. Yeah. I think what you're talking about, too, is really, I mean, it's, it's such a change in my life, mm -hmm. you know, in that when I was growing up, there was sort of a constant sense of morality. People had a sense, that people agreed on what was right and what was wrong. And now everything is great. You know, there's, and, and the thing is, is that one, you know, if you've got one position, you shame the other position. You know, and, and we're very much gaming society. And, you know, and probably you wind up standing up for things that you, and you're not 100% sure you're right anymore either. Yeah. You know, and um, it's, it's, it's very, very, very difficult, I think, at times. I mean, I, I, this is the society I grew up in was so much, so much simpler. Right. You know, I mean, there was terrible things going on. Like, I had no idea growing. I was born in 1943. I'm old, <laughs> you know, and I had no idea like that. You know that the residential schools thing, particularly in the 60s. Right. You know, and I'm in my 20s, and uh, I had no idea that was even going on. So I mean, there were these things going on, but it, but we all sort of knew. We we agreed. Everybody agreed what was right and what was wrong. And now there's just so much disagreement and. Uh, and the other side is shamed. I mean, like you're you're big on vaccines or you're an anti-vaxxer or mm -hmm. whatever, you know. And the other side is just just shamed. Yeah. Right. I mean, um, it doesn't matter. You, abortion, we're not even allowed to talk about it. Mm -hmm. You know, you, not, you, you can have it one position or another, but we're not even allowed to discuss it. Right. You know, uh, if you say the, the wrong thing, you know, as a, as a TV personality, you're gone. You know, and it's, it's what somebody has decided is the wrong thing. Yeah. yeah you well, know, it does. It, it does take it, a lot of humility. And we yeah, need a well, lot of humility. Well, it, it takes. But also conviction. Yeah. Courage. It's courage. It's courage to, th to think differently than the one narrative that's. Yeah. Well, that's what's important about because Saul wants to go with the flow where Samuel, Jonathan and David are always going out on their own. Yes. And yet they are going with God. It's, and so it's very difficult to take that position where you're disagreeing with the maddening crowd yes, yes. Uh, and knowing and that you stand with God. As Christians, we more and more, I think we're having to stand up and, and take courage. Otherwise, like, yeah, but as no Christians, we don't all agree yet. either. That's true. This is it. As Christians, we don't all agree either. Right. Yeah. And the things you hold a, per, a particular position on something, you know, any of these issues, and now you're slaughtered. And so, so now, anything you say is meaningless because you're one of those. Well, hopefully not church were slaughtered, but we, we don't always treat each other well. 
But in terms of like the mainstream narrative that's going on with, you know, what we're supposed to believe in, what the media tells us we're supposed to believe, that definitely, if we think differently, if, if we've done any research outside of the news hour, and we think differently, then we, yeah, we've got a lot at stake if, mm -hmm. we, if we think differently. And so I believe we have to be courageous. We're going to have to be more and more courageous or just yeah. blend it, in it, with it, the group. It, it's not easy. It, it it's, not. it's not easy. And, and like, it, it's, it's you know, the, the politics of the thing, you know, it's, you know, if you, if you don't believe this, this, this sort of thing, you're not ever going to get elected. Yeah. And, and we just accept that. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, you, you can't, you can't like, you know, what two of the parties in the House of Commons, if, you, if you're pro-life, you, can, you, you can't run for parliament. Hmm? Two. Three parties. Three. Oh, yeah, I get, that's right. Three. Three parties. You know, and you, you can't uh, candidate. I want to come hang out with you guys over there. Uh, yeah. You guys sound pretty lively. You can just see what we're doing. It's really, it's really <laughs> festive. <laughs> yeah, Fred. Now, I would just like to say that that I'm glad you chose Saul to mm. talk about because it, his is a very powerful story. And yes. yeah, I just reread it again and I found it very moving. Mm. Yes, you know, I, I hope that people will take the time to read the story of Saul after hearing this talk. Mm -hmm. Because, um, yeah, you really start realizing why Saul is treated the way he is and what we're supposed to learn about Saul from scriptures. So I'm glad. Anina. Oh, Julia. Um, I'm wondering, so, so you were talking and sort of wondering how to begin this process. You said grieving. like Julia wants to understand how we might begin this process of godly grief if we struggle yeah if we struggle in these areas i can see a lot of myself in this mm. area and really practical um i want to get this get to the list for the day and you know i like going to scripture because it's very simple for me like i can hear god's voice i can see i i totally 100 percent trust mm. his voice um in scripture and you know praying i have to sit there and you know be still it's really hard but you, you know you're reading the bible you feel like you're doing something so i just always want to be and if i wanted to pray i would journal because i'm doing something you put sit still on your list <laughs> <laughs> yeah if you put sit still on the list how do you yeah um like the grieving like to recognize that it is all just sort of there's a lot of it is form, but it's not necessarily like heart. Right. Well, you know, Jesus, when he speaks about Martha and Mary, Martha is not wrong for being busy about the feast. But the problem is, is that she has not chosen the better thing. And perhaps it's because she's never chosen the better thing. Uh, and Mary is not considered lazy for sitting there and listening to the voice of God through Jesus. Um, and, you know, listening to Jesus's teaching, which would have been wonderful. Um, how I wish that we could have a teacher like Jesus, but I am thankful for his spirit to give us those truths through us. But 
how great to be straight from the source, you know. But and I even see it in teaching my kids, like I'm ticking off the prayer with them or I'm ticking off the Bible reading, but it's not like yeah, I think ticking off the prayer, but see, you're just throwing me a softball because this is where Julie and I have our biggest disagreements. <laughs> I hate lists, I hate schedules. Let's just keep in step with the spirit. Um but you're literally ticking them off. <laughs> Yeah, she's ticking me off. Um, but I want to uh, say that being practical is very important. And the ministry of Labrie, for instance, would not survive without you because of your practical administrative mindset. Um, and it gives Liz and I possibilities of sitting around talking with people uh, and to devote our times to prayer and to reflection. And, and those are important things, but that's not the only, uh, but, you know, God is not only in the, uh, the imagination. God is in the practical. Uh, God's leading is in the practical as well. But we need to learn how to set down our pen, set down our list, and to say, God, I really want to be open. Where are you leading me now? Where are you, where are you leading me in this moment? Rather than saying, I have five minutes because I need to go do this, um, Edith Schaefer was famous and sometimes problematically so for um, being late or missing flights. She couldn't exist in a post 9-11 world. <laughs> but uh, but pre-9-11, she was able to miss flight after flight and then just get on a later flight because she would be talking to somebody and say, no, this conversation is more important than me being on time. I think that we, uh, I, th I don't know who said it first, but they say ministry is in the interruption. It's not on your accomplishing your agenda or your goal. Uh, so what if you accomplish your goal, but you've crushed your family or you crushed the church? Um, rather is saying, no, I need to be open to interruption. And it's not, not just the practical, it's also like doing the work of, trying to do the work of God in your own power. I think that's probably more than... Yeah, it's not really the practical, but doing the work in the power of yourself and not in the power of God. Yeah. Right, that's true. Another thing that I uh, thought of as you were going through the uh, narrative yes. is uh, how much really is, how little is written about Saul compared to what we read about David. I mean, the Psalms uh, that he has written... Right. It just really shows that he spent a lot of time thinking about the things of God and worshiping God and focusing in on it and obviously being led by the Spirit of God, whereas Saul apparently was busy with his other stuff. So um, I think that's pretty clear, you know, in the, uh, in the scriptures. Yeah, you know, that's a very interesting point, Eli. To, um, that I don't know if you heard what Eli was saying. Yeah. That, you know, what's interesting about that is that David has a heart for God, and it shows through his rich internal life, where Saul is so much about appearance that we don't find very much about him from the inside. It seems like he lacks substance in the inner life. Uh, you know, when we don't know God, I think that we are disintegrated on the inside and we don't really know ourselves. It takes for the gospel begins with God knowing us or us knowing that God knows us, that integration begins because God starts leading us to know ourselves. Um, 
And I believe it's that integration that enables us to know the inner life, to have a healthier inner life, to have an expressive inner life. Um, and so, yeah, it is interesting that we've not given much about Saul, but I think it's because he represents appearances and not substance, whereas David is the opposite. Yeah, Liz? Oh, just, just a psalm. I, I never remember the numbers of psalms that I was reading, but I was reading one today that was, it, I'm just going to like probably quote it badly, but David was saying, um, let the morning bring me word of your steadfast love. Um, sh make me to know the, the way that I should go. And then a couple of verses later, may your spirit lead, lead me on level ground. Mm. And just, and like, I think that just says so much about, you know, like he's like really waiting on God to lead him, you know, mm. even though he didn't have like the Holy Spirit living in him in the same mm. way, like just his dependence and his reliance and, and just saying like, I'm not going to move without that. Mm. Um, yeah. It's interesting that he does wait, that he, he wants to not go ahead of God. Yeah. Uh, and it's interesting to me how Saul is so out of step. Mm. And sometimes David reacts in a way that we're just like, what? Or Jonathan, you're just like, oh, is he just foolhardy? But it seems that he knows an intimation of God that we don't. And we're not given in scripture, but he's given it in his spirit. Um, or Jesus. I mean, Jesus moves left when everyone thinks he should go right. He goes right when everyone thinks he should go left. Uh, because he's so in tune what their father is doing. Uh, and so how important that is for us to learn what it means to be led by God in each moment. And I think that that's, that means that it's not a formula. Because sometimes God says, be encouraged. Sometimes he says, feel the weight. Mm -hmm. Sometimes he says, move. Sometimes he says, wait. Um, and so we need to be sensitive to say, okay, just what was true yesterday doesn't mean that it's true today. Even though his character is true, trustworthy, and consistent. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't mean that we will always predict the movements that he has for us. Yeah, yeah Melissa. So you were speaking at the beginning um, just how you feel at all times, or different times, I should say, all of us fall into religious. Um, yeah, we all fall into religious, but not spiritual. Yeah. And I just can't help considering the whole aspect of religious practices that mm. I wouldn't say, we, at least myself, I wouldn't fall into it, but I would choose to use some of those practices to help me kind of get more clear direction spiritually. Um like if I'm struggling in my prayer life to use the Psalms as a more structured way mm. to pray or a prayer book. Um, yeah, just different religious practices that maybe fall under the, more of the religious side. Right. But for me, I've always found they actually help guide me back spiritually when I'm feeling like I'm a little bit lost or not sure or confused or whatever. Mm. There's a reason, I guess, why they're developed mm. to help you progress. Um, so I'm just wondering what, where you feel those fit. That's great. I'm so glad you asked that. Because like I said, I'm not against religious forms. I'm not saying that we shouldn't do any spiritual practice. I'm not saying that we shouldn't find structure or communion or go to a cathedral or have priests or anything like that. I'm not saying that we should all just be expressive and just follow the whims of God. Uh, because I think that actually disorders community. And, you know, Paul says the spirit is a spirit of order. Uh, you know, when, when the psalmists are lamenting, 
they don't know what to pray. And so they, so many of the lament psalms are acrostics, which means that they're in alphabetical order to give them a structure to their grief. They don't know what to pray. Uh, there are times when we lose focus, you know, C.S. Lewis in his letters to Malcolm, which is just his book on prayer. I don't think there's a real Malcolm. It's just that it's just his way of, it's kind of like screw tape letters where he's writing on addresses of prayer. And his first letter to Malcolm is uh, this guy is saying, well, why are you, why do you like these old prayers, like the book of common prayer, rather than just spontaneous prayers? And he says, well, he thinks that spontaneous, C.S. Lewis is saying spontaneous prayer is good, but if we only do spontaneous prayer, then it only leads us to just be guided by our own best thoughts. Uh, and we end up finding ourselves quite repetitive and mundane and boring even. And we can be uninspired by our prayers uh, just because we want to be spontaneous and genuine and um, authentic before God. But um, uh, C.S. Lewis said, actually, when I read these old prayers that were written long ago, it reminds me to remember the history of the saints before me and also the saints around the world at this time. It reminds me of my community, I, my communal identity in Christ. Mm -hmm. It reminds me and it tells and it guides me in prayers that I would not have chosen for myself. Pray for the persecuted church, maybe, mm -hmm. or pray for something else. And it's just theological reflection prayer. And so yeah, I'm not saying that the religious reforms, these religious forms are bad and that they're going to guide us away from authentic spirituality. What I'm saying is that we just can't look to them as the end goal. Uh, but if we see them as, and so I think of these religious practices, um, you know, I was greatly helped by this class, by this Biola University professor called The Dark Night of the Soul. It was um, at Regent College about contemplative prayer. There was a lot of things I didn't like about what the teacher said, but my prayer life was helped ever since then um, because he asked me, uh, he, he gave the, the homework that night. He says, I want y'all to sit. He didn't say y'all, but he says, I want y'all to sit still for five minutes and don't say anything. Just sit before God's presence. And if you need help, just a Lectio Divina style, like just open the scriptures and find a passage or a refrain that helps you stay centered. Very close to kind of like Buddhist, you know, kind of alm like stuff, but it was, it was an attempt at being biblical. And I thought, okay, I'll try this. And the next morning he said, did, and it was like a two week class. We were there each morning. And he said, who, who was able to finish their homework last night? And no one raised their hands which meant no one was able to sit still without saying something to God in prayer. The next night he goes, tonight's 10 minutes. He said, by the end of this class, you're going to sit for quiet for one hour and feel okay. Mm -hmm. And I remember one time I was sitting there for 30 minutes and I was thinking, man, this is such a waste of time. I got things to do. But then Julia and I, what I needed to do was watch a movie with Julia and we watched a two and a half hour movie and I never, and during that movie, I thought I never squirmed or fidgeted thinking I needed to do something because I just watched the movie and just kept enjoying it. Why can't I sit with God for those minutes and see if he has something to say? Mm -hmm. uh, so by the end of that class, I was able to sit for an hour and be still before God. Um, and it really has opened a way for me to be prayerful over scriptures 
and to sit still before God waiting for him to speak rather than saying, okay, this is my laundry list. And what do you need to say? You know, and just kind of put like a biblical truth in there and then be on my way, but learn how to sit still. And that's been very good for my spiritual life with God. And it was a spiritual form. It was a religious form, but I have seen people come through Labrie who thought contemplative prayer is the only type of prayer. And, uh, and you have to do this. And if you're not doing this and you're not really sitting still before God, you're not really praying. So, um, yeah, it's just about how we relate to the form. So forms are fine. They help us give us structure. Sometimes they're like crutches that help us learn how to walk in certain ways, but we just can't depend on them for the rest of our life. We just need to know their temporary use and their, and how we might, might relate to them. So, so I think it's awesome. Fred. Fred? Yes. I, I found religion a, a good discipline and a discipline I need. Mm. Uh, it was been really highlighted for me this last year that uh, my going to church has been very slap happy. Yeah. Uh, so uh, so I, I need that, the religious discipline, and then uh, trust that God will deal with the real stuff otherwise. Mm. Thank you. Uh, Liz? Um, yeah, two comments. What? She has what two I was, comments. I was just thinking about Jamie Smith's book, You Are What You Love, and how these practices actually do shape our hearts. So you're talking mm. about like, uh, you know, this kind of movement from, you know, inward to outward, like the, the actions come out of the heart, but also the actions can help shape the heart. Mm -hmm. um, so so, yeah, I mean, I, maybe you could say something about that. Yeah. So Liz says that in uh, Jamie Smith's book, uh, You Are What You Love, James K. Smith, um, mm -hmm. he says that, you know, basically he talks about cultural liturgies, that there are things in culture that shape us, shape the things that we do, shape the way we believe. And so... Um, Commercials, for instance, not Liz didn't say this, but commercials or even just using uh, my kids growing up on YouTube, smartphones and computers had have led them to believe things about reality that I disagree with, <laughs> that things are immediate, things are accessible, things should be free, the best quality for free quickly. Uh, and I say, OK, this is not uh, this is not. Um, uh, this is not reality or something like that. But what it means is that these cultural practices or, or what Jamie Smith would call cultural liturgies have shaped their spirituality, have shaped their worldview. And so Liz was saying, well, yes, um, can't external acts do make change to our hearts? Because I was saying that the religious but spirit, not spiritual are looking to external forms to guarantee an internal reality or internal change um, or to produce it. And so that's a nuanced way of saying something. I'm not saying that external forms cannot do anything. I'm not saying that they can't shape us. Uh, um, so, so I need to be careful what I watch, what I listen to, uh, who I'm friends with, Liz. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
I have to be very thoughtful about the things that I let in my eyes and my mind and my ears, because I can be shaped by these things. You know, C.S. Lewis, again, uh, I didn't quote him during the lecture, so I got a free reign to quote from him in the Q&A. But C.S. Lewis says that we're more animal than we like to think. And he's saying that to understand Christianity, you should really go into a church, kneel and recite the Nicene Creed. To, um, and so when a person says, what does it mean to be a Christian? He was saying you need to kneel and recite the Nicene Creed. Now, C.S. Lewis is not a person who's saying it's just a religiosity. That would have been far from his mind or his, senti- or his sensibility. But rather, he's saying that actually the forms of our prayer and the form of our service, the forms of our practices do shape us more than we like to think. We like to believe that we have mind over matter. Uh, which was the context in which he was writing. But we've come to understand that actually our environment really shapes us. In fact, I would say that postmodern society says that our culture or our social formation is everything. We are only what our society forms us into. I think that goes too far. Um, uh, no, we, we, can be, we can counter that. Uh, we don't have to believe what we're born into. We can consciously choose also what shapes us. Though. And we can consciously choose what shapes us. That's right. So we're not just um, apparitions or just another effect among other, co- uh, another, uh, other effects, but that we participate, we have agency in the world that we have. And yet we know that we can choose those things that will shape us. But it, the, the problem is, is when we start looking to those things to be the solution. Uh, saying, oh, okay, if I pray long enough or if I have the right technique, then my heart will change. But it's not to say it can't structure my prayer, it can't structure my sensibilities around who God is or this kind of thing, but it's just not going to be the thing that transforms you. It's just going to nudge you in the direction where, um, where God wants to speak to you, uh, you know, face-to-face, as it were. Yeah, that's good. Carla? Uh, you know, no... I was just going to say this thing with external form. Um, uh, one doesn't have to be terrified of it. Um, the thing is, it also, I mean, uh, awakens memory, awakens uh, or or alerts you to something. I mean, it does have an impact on you. I mean, C.S. Lewis writes very movingly about some of this. I forgot in which one of his books. Uh, but it has an impact on you. But I mean, you, what you're saying is all right. Uh, but I just thought that, that uh, well, that's an element. And the other thing I just wanted to say about prayer, it is a problem. And uh, because one can babble, 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 <laughs> you know, and sometimes to have a form, which is why we have um, the, our father is a prayer. Yes. That, that that we follow. Yes. Okay. And so uh, there are certain certain times when we may need mm. a prayer to follow because yes. something in us would just babble, right? Yes. <laughs> That's all I want to say. It was fabulous. So I, I enjoyed it. And I would go back to what Carla says. I mean, this is the value of things uh, like the Anglican prayer book, 
which I know a lot of evangelicals don't like, but if you go through the prayers there, um, they shape your prayer and help you pray. So that's all I want to say. Yeah, I, I think that, yeah, the Book of Common Prayer is very helpful, and Jesus even gives his own religious form of the Lord's Prayer. <laughs> yeah, that, that they can shape us and give us wisdom and direct us. Even, uh, I think Brueggemann said that the Psalms were our words to God, that God has made as his words to us, so that we may pray those words to him. Uh, it's kind of a fun way of thinking about the Psalms. Uh, and their inspiration and their use. But the Psalms have been, in a sense, like the hymn book for God's people for thousands and thousands of years that we can go to that shape our moral imagination about who God is and what God is doing. Even scripture itself could be considered a religious form that as we immerse ourselves in the narrative, immerse ourselves in its poetic form, that we are being shaped in our imagination and in our, our moral formation by, uh, by what is directing us to see about God and to hear from God. So yes, of course, there can be religious forms um, and that they can shape us and powerfully shape us and in good ways. But I can't even look, but I, but I stand my ground to say that, but sometimes people look to the Bible, they think that if they know the whole Bible that somehow it saves them. You know, the Pharisees knew scriptures in and out, but Jesus came and says, don't you know that it is written? Haven't you read? It's because they hadn't been morally formed in the way that God was wanting them to be morally formed by his word. And so, yes, uh, it's just that we can't look to the religious forms to guarantee the spirituality, but they can help shape us morally and in our imagination with God. So.